Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered how flat a board really needs to be? Are you considering buying or building a frame saw for resawing, but you aren't quite sure if they're worth it? Would you like to know how to proportion different pieces of a project when you're still in the design stages? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques for May 23rd, 2017. Thanks for joining me for episode 4 of the show. So as I was doing my preparations for this week's show, I realized that my backlog of questions is starting to get a little thin, so I'm putting out the request for y'all to get busy sending in your questions and your topic suggestions. You know, I really want to continue doing the show, but a lot of the content originates from you folks and your questions and participation. So uh, get busy leaving those voicemails and, and emailing in your questions because I really want to hear from you guys. You know, what do you think about the show? Do you like the format? Are there guests you'd like me to try and get on the show? You know, I have a I have a couple of ideas for guests, but I just need to work out the connection with my rural satellite internet service. Um, you know, I'm hoping it'll work, but I'm not quite sure just yet. But, you know, we'll see if there's someone you want me to get on the show specifically. Let me know. Uh, along those lines, I was also thinking about setting up a Facebook group for the show. I realize that a lot of you probably use Facebook already, and maybe having a Facebook group for the show would be a good forum for you to ask your questions or suggest topics or just talk woodworking. So let me know if this is something you'd find useful and if it's something you'd be interested in participating in. And if there's enough interest, I'll, I'll set something up. So, uh, you know, what's been going on in the shop the last couple of weeks? Well, I finished up the sliding lid candle box for the class that I'm going to be teaching in July. Um, I did end up using a technique that was rediscovered by Don Williams that involves using the polissoir to burnish the surface and drive beeswax into the, the pores to fill the grain. But since my box was cherry, there wasn't really a lot of pore filling, but the process really gave the wood a you know a nice satiny sheen all by itself. So and I guess the, the best way I can describe the final surface is that it's, it's kind of soft. Uh, you know, it's a real tactile surface. You just kind of want to touch it and, and feel it. It's 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 a real nice surface. But uh, anyway, I, I burnished the surface with the polissoir and the beeswax and then uh, finished it up with some finishing wax rubbed on with Liberon 4 aught steel wool and uh, buffed off with an old flannel bed sheet. And I'm really happy with it. It came out nice and you know, but it's not something I'd think I would do on a real large surface because it's it's pretty time consuming to burnish the entire surface with the polissoir and you know I think I'd also want a more protective finish for a, a larger piece of furniture that was going to see some more abuse. Uh, this one's just going to end up hanging on the wall, so wax was sufficient and it's easily renewable on a on a small piece like a candle box. Uh, but that's about it. You know, it's all I got really got done in the shop over the past couple of weeks. Uh, my shop time was kind of limited after I finished the candle box because we finally got a break from the rain here in the mountains. And, uh, you know, I spent a bunch of time with the final preparations for planting the garden and doing some work on the cabin. And, you know, hopefully I'll be able to get back to the shop this week. And I'm not quite sure what my next project's going to be, but we'll have to kind of get in there and see what inspires me. Um, I've got a nice brass thumb screw that a friend of mine made for me so I may try to make that new panel gauge that I've been meaning to make for a while but 
we'll see what happens once I get back there and start looking through the you know, the wood stack and see what inspires me. So I do have a new patron to thank this week. Special thanks to Jeff Skiles for signing up to support the show over at Patreon. And also continued thanks to Bill Warnock, Krista Kay, and Lawrence Polinski for your continued patronage. And if you want to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And there you can sign up to pledge a dollar a month, $3 a month, or $5 a month. If And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to the once a month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. And the next patron extra show is scheduled to be posted on May 30th. And if you sign up to become a patron at $3 a month or more, you'll get access to that show, as well as past and future patron extra shows for as long as you remain a patron. So again, this week, I don't have any feedback to share with you. But if you'd like to share your feedback on the show or you have something to add to questions that I've answered in previous shows, or if you don't agree with my answers and just want to share your own opinion, then please, you know, send in your feedback. Uh, You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can send it in an email to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. Or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. And since we don't have any feedback, let's get right into the mailbox. So our first question comes from Joseph C. Joseph says, hi, Bob. I'm really glad that you're getting back into podcasting. I have watched all your old videos, some of them multiple times, and really enjoyed your video content. I don't, I don't want to sound ungrateful that you're doing an audio podcast now as I'm really enjoying it as well, but I was wondering if you have any plans to start making videos again. So, Joseph, uh, I, I touched on this briefly, I think, in, the, in my first episode of the, of the audio show, but you know, I, I do at some point hope to get back to doing video. Um, unfortunately, I, the shop's just really not ready for it. Um, acoustically, it's not the greatest place. Um, the lighting in, in the current shops, not the greatest place, not the, not the greatest, um, you know, so, uh, it's tough to get really good video in a, in a building with, uh, such poor lighting. And, uh, you know, if I do it, I want to do it right. I want to make sure the audio quality is really good. Um, and I want to make sure the lighting is good. Um, you know, so it's going to take a little bit of time for me to, to get back to being ready to, uh, to do that. Um, and I'm going to need to get, you know, pick up a, a little bit of equipment as well. Um, you know, my old, um, my old microphone that I used to use when I was filming video, um, you know, just isn't, isn't up to snuff anymore. It, it, uh, kind of basically broke. Um, so, you know, just not working. And, uh, so I have to replace that. And, you know, so there's some things that I, I need to do, um, and to, uh, to make right before I can start doing videos again. So it's going to be a little bit in the future yet, you know, the time's just not there and the equipment's just not there, but you know, um, you can support that by, uh, by becoming a patron if you so choose, um, you know, and that'll help us get there. But, um, you know, it's still going to be a little bit of time yet, even, uh, even if I can pick up the equipment, you know, I may be able to do a, a short video here or there, but, um, nothing serious really until I'm able to, to get, the lighting improved and get the, uh, the shop better set up for, for shooting video content. So I don't really have a timeline for that. Unfortunately, uh, most of my time is going into building the cabin right now and trying to get that done. And, uh, but once, you know, once the cabin's done and I can, I can get into fixing up the shop and getting it ready for shooting video again, you know, then we should be able to, 
to get started back down that road again. So it's coming at some point in the future. I'm just not sure exactly when that's going to be just yet. So the next question comes from Roger. And Roger says, when surfacing boards with hand planes, how flat is flat enough? Does one really need to plane a board as flat as a machine would for use in handwork? So, you know, a lot of how flat is flat enough has to do with what the board is going to be used for. But I think I should clear up one misconception first um, before we move on to, to exactly how flat the board needs to be. Um, I would actually argue that hand planes are capable of getting work flatter than machines are um, for a couple of reasons. And, you know, if you've ever used a power joiner and planer and taken your boards from the planer to your workbench and hit them with a hand plane, what you're probably going to notice is that that planer um, or joiner leaves some scalloping in the surface. And that's because of the, the rotary cutters, essentially. They're really scooping wood out as you pass it over. And it really doesn't matter how fine of a cut you take on that joiner or planer, there's always some scalloping left over. Um, so I would argue that, you know, finishing your boards with a hand plane is actually going to get them flatter than a machine would. So along those lines, you know, let's think about how flat do boards actually need to be. Um, if you're going to put a straight edge on every board, you're going to spend a lot of time with your hand planes. So I think we need to really look at um, the application and, and what we're using that particular board for to determine how flat it really needs to be. So we'll take the example of a tabletop. Now the, the beauty of a tabletop is for the most part, it really doesn't have to be that flat in terms of measurement, you know, sticking a feeler gauge underneath a straight edge or anything like that. Um, it just has to look fairly flat, right? So but it doesn't actually have to be really flat because we're not referencing any joinery off of that tabletop. Um, you know, we're not, it doesn't have to fit into any other surface, you know, like a drawer or something like that. So in terms of something like a tabletop where there's, there's no constraints on that, you know, it's just a board sitting on top of a frame. It doesn't really have to be very flat. It just has to look flat. Um, and actually, if you look at a lot of period work, and you look at the bottom side of a tabletop, what you'll often see is that they planed it with a, a four plane or a jack plane and left it at that. And there'll be, you know, a lot of deep scalloping in the bottom of that tabletop because it's not a show surface. Um, and it's, it's not really referenced for joinery. So the top of the table is plain with a smooth plane. It looks flat and it's good enough. Now, if we get into something like a table leg, well, typically you're going to want that surface to be pretty flat if you're going to be referencing joinery, making joinery in that table leg. So when you put, if you're going to make a mortise in that table leg and you're going to fit a tenon into that mortise, when you cut your square shoulder on that tenon, you want that shoulder to fit tight to the table leg and close up that gap. If your table leg is not flat, at least in the section in the area where that mortise is going to be, then what you're going to end up with is gaps in the joinery. Similarly, for something like dovetail drawers, um, if your stock is not flat, you're going to end up with gaps in your joinery. Now, in dovetails, you can actually get away with a less flat surface than you can with mortise and tenon, because when with a mortise and tenon, you've got a very crisp, sharp, square shoulder that's going to come up against that mortise surface. 
And if that uh, surface where that mortise is put is out of flat at all, you're going to get a gap at the shoulder. With dovetails, um, you know, we can use a little bit of a, of a trick by clamping, actually clamping out anything, any, any out of flatness. I don't think that's a word, but whatever, um, any out of flatness, you can kind of clamp that out in your vise. You know, if you're, if you're dovetailing together, say a case side and that case side's got a little cup to it. Well, when you go to fit and transfer your, your tailboard to your pin board or your pin board to your tailboard, however you're going to do it, you can actually clamp out that cupping when you make that transfer, you know, use a couple of calls and some clamps, uh, clamp it out in the bench vise, whatever you've got to do to clamp that case side nice and flat before you transfer your pins to your tailboard or your tails to your pin board, depending on what you cut first. And then when you assemble that joint, what's going to happen is the joinery itself is going to pull the board, pull the, the case side more flat than it actually was. And it's going to hold it there. The joinery will hold it there. So um, I think in a lot of cases, you can get away with uh, surfaces that are a little less than, you know, perfectly flat. But I think the, the real goal is to think about the situation and exactly what it is that you're doing and what would happen if it's not 100% perfectly flat. So, you know, whether it's going to be a joinery surface, whether it's a panel that needs to fit in a frame and the frame is going to hold the cupping out. So it's really going to change um, depending on the situation. And I think you really need to consider the situation and and use the situation to determine how flat your boards need to be for the particular work that you're doing. So our next question comes from Jason. And Jason says, I'd love to hear further thoughts on the resaw frame saw that you built a while back. Having some mileage under your belt, is there anything you change about your saw? And how are you feeling about the length and tooth count particularly? So Jason, I think, um, you know, the resaw got a lot of press a few years ago. Um, you've got guys like Bad Axe and uh, Isaac Smith um, over at uh, Blackburn Tools making kits for, you know, the big resaw frame saws now. Um, and I like mine, you know, mine came from, um, Mike Seamson, the parts from it, uh, for it came from Mike Seamson. Uh, it was a, the guys up at the, uh, Minnesota Woodworkers Guild. They, they made a bunch of them and, uh, he sent me one, uh, you know, cause I helped him out a bunch at, uh, Woodworking in America a few times. So he sent me an extra kit that they had and, um, you know, I like it. But what I will say for anyone thinking about building one is that you need to be prepared to practice with it. Um, these aren't saws that you're immediately going to get the hang of. Typically, they, they take a little bit more practice and a little bit more work to really nail down the technique. Um, a lot of them were originally designed to be two-person saws. If you look at a lot of the old plates, um, like the plate from Rubeau, where the where most of the designs came from there they show two people using it to saw veneer and i found that it's actually harder for me to use it with two people because you really need the second person really needs to to be just as good if not better of a sawyer than you are in order to use that saw well and you really got to um, kind of get into a groove and into a rhythm with that other person so it really helps to have been sawing with them for a while um I, you know, for the most part, it's just me and my shop. So I just use it by myself, but still, if I haven't used it in a while, it really helps for me to, 
um, make some practice cuts with it and, you know, get a little, get, get back into that rhythm because it's a, again, it's a saw that takes a little bit of practice to use and I won't even use it unless I'm resawing stock that is, you know, wider than six or eight inches. Um, because it, it, if the stock is too narrow, it's just really not worth it. Um, it, the saw tends to drift and, um, it, it'll twist and get out of the, out of the, out of square very easily, unless there's a lot of, of blade registered in that cut and you get everything started real, real evenly. So in terms of the length of the saw, I think for a single person, the, my saw blade, I think is about 48 or 50 inches long. So it's a long saw. Um, and I think for a single person to use, it may be a little bit too long. I might think about shortening it down to about three feet um, to use by yourself. It'll make it a little bit lighter, and I think it'll make it a little bit easier to use. Um, but at the same time, having that really long blade really does help when you're cutting through boards that are, you know, 12 inches wide, 13 inches wide, 14 inches wide. So I think it's really a matter more of the size of the stock that you're sawing and not so much who's using the saw. But I think for, for what most people are going to be doing with it, and for most of the time for what I do with it, I think something about a foot shorter might be a little bit easier to wield um, with you know by yourself. In terms of the tooth count, I think the tooth count is good. Um, I'm at about maybe two, two and a third teeth per inch, something along those lines. Um, they're big teeth, you know, but when you're resawing through a, a thickness of eight inches, 10 inches, 12 inches, you need really large teeth to move the saw through the cut efficiently and to be able to clear all of that sawdust and all of the, I mean, it's more like shavings actually, when you, when you really look at it, what's coming out of that kerf, it's really like shavings. So you really need those big teeth, um, to, to clear that waste efficiently. You could use smaller teeth and what's going to happen is that the teeth are going to tend to clog up. You might think it would be easier to control a saw with smaller teeth, but what actually ends up happening is that the teeth clog up with sawdust um, and then they tend to jam and it, it screws up the uh, the kerf and it doesn't want to track straight. So you're actually better off with you know the real large teeth like what I've got on my saw um, so that the gullets are nice and big. They can gather a lot of that sawdust and clear it from the kerf efficiently uh, on each saw stroke. What I think I might change on um, my saw uh, if I were to do it again would be the width of the blade. So when the guys up in Minnesota made these kits, they used two inch wide uh, blade stock and it works, but I think the original was more like four inches. Um, and I've heard some folks who have experimented with wider blades um, and they seem to think that it, it works a little bit better. I don't have experience with the wider blade, so I can't say for sure. But I think if I was going to um, make another one, uh, I would try a slightly wider blade, maybe four inches. Um, I think that would help to keep it tracking a little bit straighter, sort of like a, a large uh, ripsaw. So um, if I was going to do anything different, that's what I think I would do. I would use a, a four inch wide blade and I would probably shorten the saw down to about three feet to make it a little easier to use with, uh, by yourself. So our last question comes from Thomas, and Thomas asks, how do you proportion different pieces of a project, for example, apron width to leg width, table height to leg width, drawers to each other on a case, etc.? 
Um, so Thomas, a lot of this comes down to trial and error. Um, I would say start by looking at old pieces of furniture, because in a lot of cases, if you look at antique furniture, they have especially stuff from the, the, um, the 18th century, whether you like 18th century furniture or not, um, it's very hard to argue that they got their proportions right. Um, and if you look at the old furniture, you'll start to kind of pick up what looks good and what doesn't. Um, and you can kind of see, you know, how they proportion things to, to get them to, to look right. Um, a, a good book that I would recommend is, is by hand and Eye by George Walker and, uh, Jim Tolpin. And they go through a lot of the historical practices of how things were proportioned, both in architecture and in furniture. Um, and there are a lot of what furniture makers did was taken from architecture. So a lot of the same practices were used. When I'm designing a project, you know, I like to to do what George recommends and just stick to whole number proportions. I think it's a, it's just a lot easier to design and think that way. Um, a lot of older magazine articles, a lot of times referred to golden ratio, which is fine um, if you want to use that. But in a in a practical sense, it's actually a lot easier just to use whole number proportions than it is to use the golden ratio. And, and there's some question, you know, how much they actually relied on golden ratio at all. Whole number proportions seem to show themselves quite a bit. Um, even if you just look at something like uh, Greek columns, Roman columns, uh, look at Thomas Chippendale's book. And a lot of books actually on, on furniture and proportions, you know, the, the Heppel white book, I believe has, has some as well. And they actually go over how to draw classical column orders, um, because those column orders are basically all based on whole number proportions. So a lot of these whole number proportions make things look decent. Um, if you go back and years ago, I, I did a, a Porringer tea table. I did a podcast from my old, uh, my old website on making a Porringer tea table. And I actually did a video on proportioning the table. Um, and I'll put a link to that video in the, in the show notes. But essentially what I did is, is I went through and I proportioned the tape, the table using these whole number proportions. And it was essentially based on column orders. Um, you know, proportions like, you know, uh, one to nine, one to six, four to five, things like that. Um, and you just kind of play with these things and you sketch them out, use a pair of dividers and a pencil, sketch them out and see what looks good. And these days, what I'm typically doing is making multiple sketches, um, whether that's in a program like SketchUp or just in my sketchbook with a pencil, a pair of dividers and a, and a straight edge and just kind of stepping things off with the dividers, drawing in some guidelines, sketching some things in and seeing what looks good. Um, and if I can find a, a design that looks pleasing to me, then I'll, I might scale that up and, and draw it full size or draw it half size to scale with all those proportions and see, you know, how does that look? Do I need to tweak anything? And a lot of it really just comes down to drawing. Um, you know, a lot of woodworkers don't like to design their own pieces and they want to work from plans. But I think if you, if you draw and if you try to come up with your own designs and your own proportions, um, based on these whole numbers, you'll start to see some things that look good. You'll, and you'll start to see whole number proportions re that repeat themselves because they look good in certain situations. 
So I would say just start drawing and, you know, try and draw with those proportions in mind and see what looks good. And then if something looks a little bit too fat, try a different proportion and change it. But remember, these proportions are really just a starting point. In the end, what we're looking to do is design something that looks pleasing. So, you know, start with the whole numbers, work through some of those whole number proportions to get your basic overview and then play with the design until it and tweak it a little bit uh, until it looks right. You know, use the proportions to get in the neighborhood. And then once you're in the neighborhood, make those small changes and those small tweaks until it looks good to you. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the form or send an email to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. I want to talk to you about a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs. Well, did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do? The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website, and in return they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend, but just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help keep the show going. So don't forget, go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog the next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is learning from the past. So recently I watched a, a video from my buddy Mark Spagnolo, a.k.a. the Wood Whisperer, uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, I'll post a link to the video I'm referring to in the show notes. But uh, in the video, Mark was responding to several comments that he saw in the Wood Whisperer community Facebook page. And essentially the comments Mark was referring to were, were all saying something to the effect of, you know, not wasting your money on books because you can learn everything you need or want to learn on YouTube. Um, now, I'm, I'm happy to say that Mark certainly did not agree with those comments, and not that I thought he would. My favorite uh, quote from his video was, you know, a lot of woodworking happened before 2006. But it's funny because, you know, these days it seems like the very first place that anyone looks for answers on just about anything is YouTube. Um, and I blame our reliance on our devices for this because, let's face it, most of the old reference material simply isn't available in electronic format. Um, or if it is, you know, like something like ebooks or Kindle, uh, you have to pay for it. And a lot of people expect everything online to be free. But it's not a mentality that's limited to the woodworking community. You know, one of my favorite non woodworking podcasters likes to remind his audience frequently that there are these things called books that are not available for free on the internet and that you can learn a lot more by spending some time with them and practicing things contained within their pages. 
Uh, so, you know, if you want to be a better craftsman, you should be reading books. And I'll go a step further even and suggest that you should be reading more than just the most recent books as well. You know, there were books written before the year 2000 as well. And there were also some pretty awesome woodworking that has been done for hundreds of years leading up to the modern day. So what I want to talk about today are five tips for how to become a better and more well-rounded woodworker by studying the past. So the first tip is to, to understand that there's pretty much nothing new in woodworking. Now, you know, of course there are new materials, obviously there, you know, plywood is fairly, uh, is a fairly new material and things like uh, MDF. Um, and of course there are, are, you know, more modern tools things like CNC's um, and 3D printers, you know, that are, are kind of, um, they're, they're picking up steam and they're, you know, they're modernizing the, the woodworking world, um, you know, but CNC's and 3D printers can only take you so far in terms of, um, in terms of your actual woodworking skill. They'll teach you lots of skills in terms of programming. But in terms of doing the actual woodworking, they're only going to get you so far, right? Then if we look at power tools, well, power tools are virtually unchanged for almost 100 years. Um, you know, there are, of course, lighter materials these days, you know, stronger plastics. Um, motors can be stronger. Electronics are smaller. Circuit boards are smaller. But for the most part, power tools, their, their general form and function is more or less unchanged for the last 100 years. Uh, hand tools have been virtually unchanged for maybe thousands of years, you know, so a lot of what we are learning today as we as we take this journey through hand, through woodworking, um, you know, it's been going on for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, so I'm pretty sure if we discover something quote unquote new in woodworking, someone's actually thought of it before. So, you know, understand that and, and realize that if you've discovered something, it's probably not new. Um, someone has probably thought of it before you, and there are probably many other things that, you know, we do every day that are documented somewhere. Um, so tip number two is to, to look at old books on hand tools and techniques. So these are, you know, these old books are really just becoming popular in the last 10 or 15 years or so. Um, anyone who is interested in history um, you know, the folks that that worked in places like Colonial Williamsburg, they've known about these books for, for many, many years because they've studied the history of the craft. But in terms of a lot of these books becoming commonplace for hobbyists, it's really only something that has gotten popular in maybe, you know, the last 15 years or so. We're starting to really hear about these books from folks in the historical fields. Um, and I'm talking about books like, you know, Joseph Moxon's Mechanic Exercises from 1681, uh, Randall Holmes' book on tools um, and craft from 1688, um, Andre Rubeau. Everybody's heard of Rubeau these days because of, of the work that uh, Lost Art Press and Don Williams have done bringing all that information back, you know, but his book, his books, multiple volumes, uh, were written around the 1760s. Peter Nicholson wrote his book uh, based on Moxon's, as a matter of fact, in uh, in 1830. Um, Roy Underhill's books, for crying out loud, you know, these are books from 
from the early and mid 1980s and 1990s. You know, and really there you know there are a lot of books from the 1600s through the 1900s that talk about traditional woodworking, woodworking with hand tools, and there are hundreds and hundreds of of books out there. And I'm sure there are a lot of lost techniques in those books, techniques that just don't get talked about much anymore until someone like Christopher Schwarz or Roy Underhill, you know, discovers them in a in an old book that's not popular anymore. And maybe it's something that just kind of gotten lost and nobody really talks about that technique anymore. And then one of these folks finds it in one of these old books and they bring it back and it becomes the popular technique again, right? So, but these things aren't new, um, you know, so if you really want to understand traditional woodworking, if you really want to understand handwork, you know, go back and look at some of these old books. You don't have to read them cover to cover, but, you know, look for things that catch your eye for certain techniques. Um, and you'll find that there are things in there that uh, might surprise you. Uh, one of the ones I love to bring up is is Peter Nicholson's book, you know, we talk uh, in the hand tool world about we when we start to talk about gouges. One of the most popular things that I hear when we start to talk about uh, in candle gouges is that oh well they're they're not useful for for most people because they were pattern makers tools in candle gouges. So these are gouges. I, I talked about them uh, in one of my older uh, my, my previous shows. They're basically gouges with the bevel ground on the inside. And the quote unquote common knowledge of today is that in candle gouges were pattern makers tools. Um, and it's still, people are still talking about them today as pattern makers tools. Well, if you go back and you look at Peter Nicholson's book from 1830, uh, The Mechanic's Companion, he writes in his section on joinery, he writes about gouges. And the only gouges that he mentions in his section on joinery are in candle gouges. There is no mention of out candle gouges at all because out candle gouges were typically used by carvers. Joiners, cabinet makers found in candle gouges much more useful in the work that they did. But that's information that just gets lost over the years and then someone sees in candle gouges as pattern makers tools in a Witherby catalog or, you know, a Buck Brothers catalog from the early 1900s and all of a sudden the assumption is that they must be pattern makers tools but as we go back and we look a little bit more closely you know we find out these things that aren't such common knowledge these days so and in candle gouges are one of my favorite tools to use in the shop you know i've said it before i'll say it again i think everyone everyone who's interested in furniture making and traditional furniture making with hand tools should have a small set of in candle gouges because they are absolutely indispensable in furniture making um, I think they're more useful than out candle gouges because out candle gouges are, are really more for carving than anything else. Um, but in candle gouges can be used for so many things in the, in the shop. Um, but they were not necessarily just pattern makers tools. Pattern makers adopted the, the style, made them a little bit longer for the work that they were doing. But in candle gouges certainly, uh, predated pattern makers. Um, the third tip that I have are to, is to read books on wood. Uh, one of the most well-known is, is Bruce Hoadley's book, Understanding Wood, uh, from it's around 1980, I think it was first published. And it really, I mean, it's a, it's a bit dry, I will say, 
but it goes into a lot of detail on the different types of woods and the characteristics of the different types of woods um, and the working characteristics and the physical characteristics. And the more you learn about the material itself, the more you, you're able to apply that knowledge in your day-to-day -day work with the material. Um, you know, I go back to an old blog post that I wrote on selecting woods for um, for handwork. And actually, it was, uh, I think I, I mentioned it in in the podcast from two weeks ago. You know, there are certain woods that just are, are better choices for working by hand because they are easier to work with hand tools. They respond better to hand tools. Um, and there are woods that are a real bear to work by hand. Well, reading books like Hoadley's Understanding Wood is it's just one of those books that will open your eyes to the different characteristics of wood and the things it can be used for and the things that you can do with it that you know you may not realize. Um, and it's just a, a great, great resource. So learning more about the material itself by looking at some of these old books and the old forestry books um, on the material itself can go a long way to improving uh, your understanding of the craft and um, you know your everyday work with the craft even if you're not really into hand tools and you only you know use hand tools once in a while um, just understanding the material itself uh, is a great way to enhance your knowledge and become a better craftsman and understand where some of these woods might be better used for you know structural pieces uh, and I'll give you an example um, you know, even if you're not a traditional woodworker, if you look at something like uh, a Windsor chair, well, in, in in Windsor chairs, we they use a lot of oak, um, ash, hickory, woods like that, ring porous woods, and they'll they'll split it out and they'll rive it out because you can make parts much 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 thinner, uh, more delicate, without making them more fragile. Because you you maintain the grain through the the unbroken, you maintain the grain unbroken through the length of the, the piece. So you gain all this strength because you're not you have no grain run out. Well, that's something that you know you can apply in a machine environment by paying attention to the grain. You know nothing says that the edge of a board from the factory from the mill needs to necessarily be the edge in the board that you're going to use. There's nothing that that says you can't re-rip the edge of that board to follow the grain and maintain more strength in that board by sawing along the grain and following the grain lines with your bandsaw. Re-establish that straight edge and then re-rip that board and now you've got a stronger board. So maybe you can now make that component thinner and you can make that component lighter and you can give it a more delicate look with just as much, if not more strength than you would have had in the original board. So things like that, you know, just reading these old books on, on wood and understanding wood a little bit better. So my fourth tip is to study old furniture um, in books and in museums. And this is one that, uh, will, you know, you get a lot of pushback on when you recommend it. You know, and I talk to people and they, they say, you know, how can I get become a better woodworker? I really don't like... Um, I really don't like period furniture, so how can I learn to, you know, work better with hand tools? Because I, I really don't like period furniture. Well, I recommend you still study that furniture, even if you don't like the style itself. Because 
one, there are there is more than just 1700s American period furniture, uh, first of all. So um, kind of have to expand your, your mind a little bit and think outside of the common period furniture. You know, when you when someone says period furniture, most of the time, the first thing that comes to mind is furniture from 1700s, America, England and France, um, you know, complex curves, lots of carving, lots of inlay, um, complex joinery in some cases. Um, and that's why you should study it, because for the most part, this furniture was at the absolute peak in the 1700s. I mean, it was the, the most complex. It was the most ornate. And even if you don't like that style, there's so much that you can learn just from studying how it was put together and how it was made that can be applied to any style of furniture. You don't necessarily have to build period reproductions to learn from the way they did build them. The The idea is to keep in mind that when these pieces were built, they were built by hand and they need to they needed to build them efficiently by hand. So by studying pieces that were built by hand and built efficiently by hand, we can get a better understanding of how we can apply what they did to contemporary furniture so that we can still build the furniture that we want to build in the style that we want to build, but using the efficiencies that were perfected in the 18th century. But there's more than just the 1700s, you know, the 18th century American and English furniture. Go back earlier and look at some of the the joiner, the joined work. Look at the type of things that Peter Follensby does, um, you know, where the wood was actually riven, split from a log um, and riven. And, you know, is some of that work a little rougher? Yeah, is some, but not all of it is. Some of it is extremely refined. So, you know, look at how some of that was put together and understand how they were using the wood. They were using its weaknesses and its strengths. They were using its weaknesses when they needed to split it, when they needed to uh, cleave it and, and, uh, and hew it. And they're using its strengths when they're maintaining all that grain, um, you know, to to add strength to the piece that they were building. Um, look at other look at furniture from other cultures, uh, German furniture, antique German furniture, Chinese furniture, Japanese furniture. You'll see a lot of different types of joinery, a lot of different types of carving than what you'll see in period American and English furniture. Um, and, you know, it's things that may not be as common. You know, if you look at a lot of American and English furniture, <clears throat> you may not see a lot of sliding dovetails. Not at least not not long sliding dovetails. You'll see sliding dovetails, you know, where drawer blades in a case piece might be connected to the case, but you don't see a lot of long sliding dovetails. Well, in German furniture, you will see a lot of that. You know, they used the sliding dovetail quite a bit. They actually had planes that make sliding dovetails in in a lot of European continental European furniture. Look at Chinese furniture, antique Chinese furniture. Some of the joinery is extremely complex and from, you know, in, in some cases you can't even really tell how they joined a piece together just by looking at it from the outside. And a lot of that joinery is very complex on the inside. And the only way to realize that is either to take the piece apart, which obviously you can't do in a museum piece, but there are books on these pieces of furniture that you can look at. Um, to realize the the types of joinery that they were doing to make these pieces so light but so strong. Um, and I mentioned two different types of carving 
than you may see in uh, in the Western culture. You'll see a lot of different carvings in the Eastern culture. Um, and again, all done with hand tools. Um, look at Victorian furniture. This is furniture, you know, from the mid to late 1800s after the Industrial Revolution started to take hold. You know, a lot of this furniture was very, still very elaborate, kind of harking back to the colonial periods in, in you know, mid 17, mid to third quarter of the 1700s um, in the Victorian furniture. Very, very elaborate. But we start to see machine work coming into play. So we start to see some changes in the joinery. Um, if you're not sure where to look, even just Google pin and crescent joinery or nap joinery, basically the same thing, K-N-A-P-P. -P. And you'll see some really odd joinery that looks like it may have originated with dovetails, but it's not dovetails. It, it's just and then another interesting way of doing joinery. And this joinery was designed to be made by a machine, right? You could make this joinery by hand if you wanted to. But it was really optimized for a machine. It would take you forever to make it by hand, and it probably would not be very precise. But you could make it by a machine, and it's an extremely strong joint, just like a dovetail would be, but a different design. And again, it's, it was actually designed to, to work with the machine. And then look at, you know, mid-century modern furniture. Again, you know, getting away from, when we say period furniture, you know, the first thought is that early American, early English furniture. Mid-century modern is, you know, your 1930s to 1960s. Um, but a lot of that furniture was still very well made, very sturdy, very strong. Um, simple designs, which are very much in vogue today. A lot of straight lines, um, you know, but not Ikea, not pocket screws and and crappy fasteners you know you're still looking at things that are going together with strong joinery that are meant to last for a little while you know not be thrown away in five years you know so look at that type of furniture as well but study these old types of furniture to understand how we can still make our furniture strong make it give it that delicate look you know and still incorporate those techniques and those tools into our contemporary designs if that's what you're so inclined to do. Uh, but don't be, you know, study the furniture, but you don't you don't have to build that furniture. You can study the furniture without building it and apply those techniques and those efficiencies to contemporary furniture and still build in a traditional way. And then finally, my fifth, uh, my fifth tip for you is to question everything. You know, it's it's interesting to me that a lot of folks will will read a book, read a magazine article, listen to a podcast or watch a video on YouTube and whatever it is that they see becomes the gospel. Um and you know, there are very knowledgeable people writing books, writing blogs, putting videos on YouTube. There are also people who are just regurgitating other people's information. Um Hell, I'm regurgitating a lot of information, right? I'm studying books from the, the 1700s and the 1800s, um, and I'm studying, you know, the work of people who came before me and regurgitating a lot of that information. But, you know, the 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 real goal is to to question everything. Why were things done this way? You know, why did they leave the plain marks on the bottom of that tabletop instead of planing it smooth? 
Um, you know, why do we have to cut our dovetails tails first? Or, or why do we have to cut them pins first? Or why, you know, do we need to stop sawing at the baseline? And why can't we saw past the baseline? You know, question everything you read, everything you listen to, everything you watch. And by doing that, you'll find out for yourself what works, what doesn't, and what's the best method of working for you. And really that's what we're after as hobbyists. You know, we're, we're trying to do these things efficiently. We're trying to finish projects because let's face it, you know, we all like the process. We all like the journey of working wood, but eventually, you know, you want to finish a project now and again. Um, but really, you know, it's about what's going to work for you. What is, what, how are you going to get the most enjoyment out of the craft? So question everything. If someone tells you, you know, you need to cut a mortise this way, and this is the way we hand cut mortises, well, maybe that's the way they do it. But person B does it another way, and person C does it a third way. So question everything. One of those ways may work for you. The other two may not. None of them may work well for you. Maybe you come up with your own method that works better. Um, so, you know, be inquisitive, question things, and and really get into, you know, trying to, to figure things out. And that's really going to kind of take your understanding of the craft to the next level, because instead of just doing what someone else tells you to do, you're really thinking about it, you're thinking about the why and thinking about how can I do this better? How can I make this better? Um, and I think that really in anything, whether, you know, it's science or woodworking, um, that's really what takes us to the next level is to to question and experiment and try things for yourself. Um, and who knows, you may be the one to come up with the, the next great technique for, for dovetailing or cutting mortises, or you may be the inventor of the next, you know, festival domino because you've come up with a better way to do things to, to make it go faster and still maintain the strength of the traditional joint. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, you can leave me a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also use the contact form or email address on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash HTT004. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. You can also sign up for my newsletter to receive subscriber-only content, updates, and special offers delivered to your email inbox every Friday. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you have multiple options for doing so. You can become a supporter on Patreon, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. You'll find links for all these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.